The Covenant Community Lecture 2, and uh, for the remainder of our time this evening, we focus on the beginnings of the answer to the problems that we left a few minutes ago. I put uh, at the top of the sheet that sentence again. The universal problem, that's of man's innate inability to live in relationship with God because of his fallen nature, is answered by a particular solution, which is destined to become universal in its scope. This is the beginning, then, of God's answer to the problem of human need. So Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The Lord had said to Abraham, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God then focuses in on one man again. We saw that to some extent with Noah, but here in a new initiative, which is going to lead to a family and eventually to a nation, God begins to deal with the problem by a sovereign intervention that calls Abraham, uh, originally with uh, his father Terah, uh, out of Ur of the Chaldees and into uh, a life of pilgrimage. Now, if we divide our material into two sections, one, Genesis 12 to Exodus 24, there is a historical ingredient, A, and a theological ingredient, B. Don't be worried about this word theological. It simply means, really, words about God. It's about God's activity, and particularly in spiritual ways in the story. The historical ingredient is God's chosen people from Abraham to the formation of the nation of Israel at the time of the Exodus. That's the history. One man becomes a nation. The theological ingredient is the establishment of relationship with God, of the one man, then of his sons, Isaac and Jacob, then of their sons, through Joseph, and ultimately of the whole nation. So historically, the formation of Israel, theologically, the establishment of covenant relationship. We'll explore that under section A. But before we do that, look at the second part, Exodus 25 to the end of Deuteronomy, again under historical and theological headings. A, historical. It's all about God's chosen people from the moment of their receiving the law at Sinai to the point where they enter the land of promise, the 40 years, as we call it, uh, the 40 years in the desert, the 40 years wilderness wanderings, it's sometimes called. Um, and that's what's happening historically. The nation is formed, it's given the law of God, and then 40 years wait because of its lack of faith before the land is theirs. Theologically, uh, what's happening is that Israel is learning to live in covenant relationship. So the first section establishes the covenant relationship, 1b. The second section, 2b, is all about living within the covenant relationship, what it means religiously, morally, in every aspect of life. That's the agenda for the Pentateuch, for the books of Moses in its simplest form. So we'll divide this lecture's material into two, establishing the covenant, and then on page three, large type, section B, living in the covenant. Those are the two areas we're going to look at for the rest of this evening. Well, it's very important to understand the promise to Abraham because the story revolves entirely around God's promise. It's not a human agreement. It's not that Abraham does God a turn and God then blesses him. 
But as we've already seen with Noah, it's the imposition of a gracious God who has been greatly offended and sinned against, who pours out his unmerited favor, his free grace, upon a man whom he chooses. And from that man and his family, he builds a people. Four things to notice then about this promise. Firstly, Abraham's descendants will become a great nation. It's never just a promise to Abraham. It always has Israel, the nation, in view. God is going to move through a people, and all those references confirm that. Again, though we don't have time to look them up in context, I hope you'll take these sheets home and you'll use them for your own study. Obviously, you'll get much more from this series if you look up the references yourself when you've got time and go over it again, because... uh, Uh, This is fairly rapid, and uh, we all need time to meditate on it and to let it sink in. So do um, look up the references. Give yourself the luxury of an hour uh, once a week to follow up your Bible study uh, for yourself. So Abraham's descendants will become a great nation. Second thing, they will possess the promised land. Uh, That's already there in verse 1, to the land I will show you. It's explicitly stated in verse 7 of Genesis 12, to your offspring, I will give this land. So there's a nation, there's a land. Thirdly, they will be God's own people. Now, that again is implied in Genesis 12, verse 2, but it's spelt out much more clearly in the renewal of the covenant in chapter 17, uh, or the renewal of the promises in chapter 17, verse 2. I will confirm my covenant between me and you, and will greatly increase your numbers. And then in verse 7 of chapter 17, this everlasting covenant will be between me and you and your descendants for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Now, as the New Testament says, we are the children of Abraham, and that is therefore fulfilled in the church. It's fulfilled in the people of God in the New Testament. So... um, We can say that that promise, of course, has always been fulfilled. There has always been. It is an eternal covenant, an everlasting covenant between God and his people. Entry into his people is now on a different basis through the cross of Christ. But we are the fulfillment of that promise. And fourthly, D, through them, those who are not Abraham's physical descendants will enter God's blessing. That's the point I've just made. But it's already here very clearly that it's not just the nation of Israel physically descended from Abraham, but all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And, of course, Paul takes that up in Romans 4 in terms of the gospel. So those are four important elements. This is how God is going to solve the universal human predicament. He will have a nation that he will work through. They will possess a land. They will be his own people in relationship to him. And they will not be simply one nation, but all the nations will be blessed through God's covenant mercy to them. Bottom of the page, an important sentence. Let me recommend to you Goldsworthy's book, Graham Goldsworthy, um, Gospel and Kingdom. We've got lots of copies. If you want a really good book on the overview of the whole Bible, I think it's one of the best on the market. It's well worth buying. He summarizes this as God's people in God's place, that's the land, under God's rule under his promise and his law. And note, too, the emphasis that is here on Abraham's faith. It's quoted often in the New Testament, Genesis 15, verse 6, Abraham believed the Lord, 
and he credited it to him as righteousness. Three times the New Testament picks up that verse so that we can't miss its import and says that's what being a Christian is all about. It's believing the Lord and God crediting righteousness to us as we have faith in him, in his promise of grace in the gospel of Christ. Very well then, over the page we have three central themes that we've now uh, deduced. The first is the theme of blessing. I will bless you. All the nations of the world will be blessed through you. You will be a blessing. Blessing is one of those words that we Christians use very often without thinking much about it, don't we? Lord, bless so-and-so-and-so-and-so. But of course it reverses the curse of Genesis 3 that we saw being worked out in Genesis 4 to 11. The blessing is the new initiative of God in restoring the Genesis 1 and 2 situation the fellowship with himself that he created human beings for. So the great blessing that God will give is the blessing of relationship with him. And he is going to work in such a way that that becomes a reality for Abraham, for his family, and for the nation. And of course that follows into the New Testament. The great New Testament blessing is being right with God, living in relationship with him, knowing that he has nothing against us because of Jesus and his sacrifice. So blessing is the first theme, people is the second theme, and this reverses the scattering idea in Genesis 11. There we saw the people who built the Tower of Babel scattered and their languages confused, but now God is going to work through a nation, through a unification of people. And through that nation, all the nations will ultimately be blessed. There is a new agenda for people. It isn't infinite fragmentation. It's a bringing together of people as the people of God. A new society re-established on the basis of a right relationship with God. And that, of course, goes on into the New Testament. You are a chosen people, a royal nation, a holy priesthood, belonging to God. It's all the fulfillment in the church, you see. That's the nations of the world being blessed, that the gospel reaches all the nations, and we share the blessings that were promised to Abraham. So there's blessing, reversing the curse. There's a new society, a new people, reversing the scattering, and there is the land. Now, the curse affected the natural environment. Uh, remember how God said uh, that the earth would only bring forth its fruit through the sweat of Adam's brow, painful toil, producing thorns and thistles. The, world, the earth itself shared in the fall, and they were evicted from the garden, so they had no home, in a sense no um, secure home after the fall, but now God promises a home. He promises a land, which he's going to say later on is a land flowing with milk and honey, where the blessing can be enjoyed, and he promises a secure environment where he will be God and they will be his people, a new land that he offers them. And the Bible is the story of God's faithfulness in fulfilling those promises. And that third promise goes on into the New Testament, not that we are inheriting a land in terms of a piece of the territory of uh, this world, but we have a heavenly city that we're looking for, and the land promises find their fulfillment in the eternal city of God and in the new Jerusalem uh, to which we're moving. So we're in the picture, you see. It's not just uh, Old Testament theology. It is New Testament Christians' experience that these promises, these great themes, have been fulfilled through the Lord Jesus, who comes as the 
the seed of Abraham. But let's go a little bit more into this because there's some fascinating themes that come out to help us understand our own salvation and God's great work in the world more clearly. So section three there, two essential ingredients. The story, as always, revolves around central events, significant moments. In Genesis, it's the story of the man. In Exodus, it's the story of the nation. And in each section, there are two major ingredients. A is sacrifice, and B is law. Whether it's the one man Abraham, or whether it's the nation Israel, they exist in this new relationship with God on the basis of sacrifice governed by law. Now, let me just try and explore that a little more fully. If you look under the section man there in Genesis 15, you'll find that at the time of the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 15, there was a sacrifice. Abraham had to bring a heifer, a goat, and a ram, and a dove, and a young pigeon, and cut them in two and arrange the halves opposite each other. And God passed through the midst of the sacrifice. Now, some scholars say that was a typical way of sealing a covenant. It was a way of signing your name on a document to make a sacrifice. And you were saying, may I be chopped in half if I am not true to my word. That may well be what God is saying. Certainly, he's saying you can rely on my word. But it's very interesting that sacrifice is at the very point of the covenant being made. It's not explained in Genesis 15, but it's there. And for Abraham to live in covenant relationship with God required him to make that sacrifice. And all through his life, he went on making offerings to the Lord. But also, for him to live in relationship with God, God spoke to him the law. He gave to him instructions. Genesis 17, verse 9. As for you, you must keep my, dis- my covenant. This is my covenant with you and your descendants. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So circumcision is given as a mark of the covenant relationship and also as an expression of obedience to the Lord who has instituted the covenant. What Abraham is being shown through the sacrifice and through the circumcision is that you can't live in relationship with God outside of God's terms. There has to be obedience to what God says. Sacrifice is very important at the heart of this relationship because sin otherwise would break it. And obedience is very important in the fulfillment of the relationship. And circumcision is given as the sign of the covenant which Abraham has to obey. When you come into the next book, the book of Exodus, you find the same two things are there. Sacrifice in Exodus 12 because at the very point where the nation is constituted, you have the Passover. The lamb sacrificed for every household, the blood put on the doorposts and the lintels, the angel of death passing over. Sacrifice is there when the covenant community is formed. You can't have a covenant people without the blood of the Passover. And as soon as they have come out of Egypt, they go to Mount Sinai, because in chapter 3 God says to Moses, you're to bring the people back to this mountain where he appeared to him in the burning bush. And when they get to Sinai in Exodus 20... God gives them the law. He says, this is how you are to live in relationship to me. This is what it means to be my people. So whether it's Abraham the man or Israel the nation, the relationship that is the answer to the fallenness of humanity and the beginnings of restoration depends upon sacrifice to initiate it and obedience to continue in it. 
That's why the law is given. Therefore, the whole business of substitutionary atonement, as we would call it in New Testament terms, is built into the Bible from the very earliest beginning. And the whole business of obedience, which is holiness, is built into our response to God from the very beginning. And you cannot escape those two uh, necessary ingredients, essential ingredients, if man is to live in relationship with God. Now, just as the God gave uh, the symbol of circumcision for um, Abraham in Genesis 15, so he gives the symbol of cloud and fire for the people in Exodus 19. They carry in their bodies the sign of circumcision, and God goes before them as cloud and fire all the way through their wilderness wanderings so that they know that he is being faithful and true to his word. He confirms their faith by these signs of his covenant presence. At the bottom of the page there, let's just add in one or two other things about this. Um, as I said, the uh, Genesis 15, it's, it's not explained in great detail. It just is introduced to us as a theme. I think it's saying God is going on oath, he's making a promise, and he affirms that this will really happen that God has promised Abraham that he will give him the land, that he will make him a great nation, and Abraham is being assured that he can rely on that promise. But in order for that to happen, he has to provide the sacrifice that God requires. And in Genesis 17, the law there is, again, a very general principle. Abraham's name is going to be changed to Abraham. He's given the sign of circumcision, and he's told that he must live in obedience to God if he is to know the blessing of God in his life and in his family. Now, it's much more carefully explained in Exodus when we get to the nation. And I'd like you to turn to Exodus 12, just for us to have a quick look at that marvellous chapter. Here it's all explained. What was in embryonic form with Abraham is now spelt out with Israel. You see, God makes a distinction between Israel and Egypt, just as he made a distinction between Noah and his family and those who were drowned in the flood, and the distinction was the ark. So now the distinction is the Passover, the Passover lamb sacrificed in order that they may shelter under its blood. What they have to do is to act in faith. Chapter 12, verse 7. They are to take this lamb, keep it in their home, three or four days as you remember and then verse 7 they're to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs now that required faith didn't it you've got to act in faith it seems a very strange thing to do but you have to do it and God explains why in verse 13 because God never gives his instructions without also giving promises he never commands without telling us why and verse 13 is there. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Now that phrase, the blood will be a sign for you, can be translated perhaps better really. The blood will be a token of you. It's not a sign for you to see. It's a sign for the angel to see. But it's a sign of you. It's in place of you. And then the Lord will pass over and you will live in peace and safety and be delivered. So the blood of the lamb is the blood of the substitute, the substitute in place of you, God says. 
And uh, already uh, we are being taught that that is the way that deliverance will come. Um, He has described Israel as his firstborn in Exodus 4.22. Israel is my son, my firstborn. Now, in order to defend his firstborn, God substitutes the lamb, and the lamb dies in the place of the firstborn son. It wasn't because they were Israelites that they were saved. It was because they were obedient to God's commandment that they were saved, and that God gathered then this great nation together as a nation through the act of the Passover. Notice, too, that there had to be an exact equivalence between the lamb and the people. That's why in verse 3 we're told, take a lamb for a family, but verse 4, if any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. Why? Because the lamb stands for the people. You're to determine the amount of the lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. So you see, there's an identification, there's a substitution going on. Not only will they eat the lamb, but the lamb represents them. And its blood over the doorpost, uh, on the doorpost and over the lintel, represents their faith in God's delivering grace, so that when the righteous judgment falls on Egypt, they are sheltered under that blood, and no no destructive plague touches them. Now again, of course, that's very rich in terms of our understanding of the New Testament gospel. It's all built in from this point onwards. And when they head for Sinai uh, and come to the mountain in which God appears, you remember, in the almost volcanic description with the fire and the smoke and the terrifying noise so that the people are absolutely overwhelmed by the revelation of God, the smoke billowed up, the whole mountain trembled violently, the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. When you come to to chapter 20, what happens? God starts to speak from the mountain and to give his instructions. Now, it is very important to realize that the law is given to redeemed people. So often the church has got into problems with grace and law. I remember a student saying to me once uh, when I was a minister in Southampton, um, I don't have to obey the Lord anymore, I just love him. Now, it's very attractive, that, isn't it? We're not, we're not tied into a hard-nosed duty, I just love him. But Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. See, it's people who love him who are taken to the mountain to receive the commandments. It's those who are redeemed who are given the law. Now, of course, the law can't make us right with God. He doesn't give the law to Egypt. Say, live by this law and then I'll justify you. That would be works religion. would stand the Bible on its head. No, the law is given to people who are already redeemed by grace. So the law shows redeemed people how they are to live in a way to please the gracious God who has redeemed them. And Jesus, of course, fulfills that law, but he writes it on our hearts and enables us through the power of his spirit indwelling us to live lives that are pleasing to God. So don't, don't have an antipathy between the law and grace. Don't say, oh, well, I'm a grace Christian, so the law of God is irrelevant to me. The law of God reveals the character of God. He still wants us to live according to his instructions and commandments. Now, of course, some of those laws, the ceremonial laws, for example, that we read later on in the Pentateuch about the worship of Israel, were all fulfilled in Christ. They're gone. 
The food laws were all fulfilled in Christ. He declared all foods clean, Mark tells us. They are not all laws that continued uh, indefinitely because Jesus fulfilled some of them in the sense that he completed all that they spoke of through his own sacrifice and the whole sacrificial system was wound up when Christ died on the cross. But the moral law that reflects the character of God still is incumbent upon the people of God if we're going to love him. If we're going to love him with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, then we need to know what sort of God he is, and his law declares his character. So we're not keeping the law in order to be blessed, but we love him because of his grace that has redeemed us, and because we love him, we want to keep the law because that's what the Father's heart is delighted by. And that sort of holiness that is reflective of Jesus is what he calls us as his New Testament people to exemplify. So these two themes, you see, are there right uh, from the start. Now, I won't go into the analysis of the details um, on the next sheet uh, at this point because I don't think we've quite got time uh, for that this evening. But let me commend to you those sections. They're all different ingredients. Obviously, the Ten Commandments started off um, and then we go on to uh, loving God in the first section and loving our neighbor in the second. And then in chapter 20, verses 22 to 26, we have some rules about worship. And then we go into social rules about slaves, about property, about human life, about justice, about human rights. Notice how the law code in chapters 20 to 23 isn't just the Ten Commandments. It's got an outworking in relationships, in social life. Uh, in religious festivals, for example, in following God's instructions uh, in detail. And as always, the giving of the law ends with some tremendous promises. That last section, chapter 23, verses 20 to 33, is a wonderful section of promises to those who are obedient. Promises of blessing, promises that they will be God's people, promises that they will live in his land. And also warnings about idolatry, and about how easy it will be to fall away from the Lord. Well, we need those sorts of warnings too, don't we? Because although we have one great advantage that they didn't have, in that the Holy Spirit actually dwells within the New Testament believer in a way that it seems he didn't in the Old Testament. He came upon Old Testament believers from time to time. But the indwelling spirit is the fruit of Pentecost. But we still have to listen to those warnings. We still have to be obedient to his promptings. We still have to work out in practice what God is working in us. Well, that's the story really up to Exodus 24 of the establishment of the covenant. But then the question is, in the second part of the passage, how then are the people of God to live in this covenant? And the rest of the Pentateuch really devotes itself broadly to that theme. Interestingly enough, the two major themes that we have already noted in the inauguration of the covenant are now elaborated and expanded. So we have a long section about sacrifice, the religious basis of fellowship with God, and then we have uh, a restatement and application of the law in the book of Deuteronomy, which of course means the second law, Deuteronomy, the second uh, uh, rehearsal of the law, which talks about the moral basis of fellowship with God. And in between, we have the book of Numbers, which I think is a very practical uh, book that explains how faithful God is 
in spite of the faithlessness of his people. Numbers is a very practical book in that it says, okay, these are the standards, but what happens when the standards are not met? Does God give them up? Is it the end of the story? No. And then we come back to Deuteronomy, the second uh, law book, to remind us of the moral basis of fellowship with God and of the law that God has given so that we understand that we do need to take his word seriously. So, in Numbers, we have two themes there, A and B. A is the unworthiness of his redeemed people. That comes out time and time again. And B is the opposition of the enemy. Do you remember that story of Balaam, who wanted to curse Israel and had to be spoken to by his donkey eventually? The Lord spoke to him through the donkey. Well, you see, he stands for the opposition. But do you remember how the promise to Abraham said, those who curse you, I will curse See, it's, it's all about the promise being worked out. And Balaam and those who employed him come under that curse because they're unwilling to recognize uh, and to submit to God's choice of Israel and to his keeping of them as a covenant people. So you've got unworthy Israel and many enemies, but Numbers says God is faithful in spite of those things. But before we get there, we need to look for a moment or two at the section in the second half of Exodus which deals with the tabernacle. Now, it's an extraordinary section, really. There's so much detail, and I don't know if you've ever studied it in detail, but there's an enormous amount of detailed accounts, some of it repeated on more than one occasion, about the setting up of the tabernacle. And obviously, any Bible student is going to say, well, why is this so important? Why such a big deal about this tent in the desert? Well, chapter 25, verse 8 and verse 22 tells us what it's all about. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, says God, and I will dwell among them. Or verse 22. There above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the Ark of the Testimony, I will meet with you. I will dwell with you. I will meet with you. So when the new translation calls it the tent of meeting, that's right, isn't it? The tabernacle, which is simply the Latin word for a tent, is the place where God meets with his people. It's the meeting place between a holy God and sinful people who have been redeemed by the blood of the Passover lamb. Now, that's part of the fulfillment of the promise, because you remember the promise is about a restored relationship. And the way in which you develop a relationship is by meeting. Um, we all know that that's true. You can get a little way with telephone calls and writing. But if you're developing a friendship with someone or if you've got a family member who's away from home, you long to meet them. It's only by meeting that the relationship really flourishes. So here God is saying, I will be your God, you will be my people, and I am going to meet with you, but it has to be on my terms. Turn the page to chapter 29, verse 42. For the generations to come, this burnt offering, here's the sacrifice again, is to be made regularly at the entrance to the tent of meeting. There's the law. There I will meet you and speak to you. There also I will meet with the Israelites, and the place will be consecrated by my glory. So I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar, and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am Yahweh their God who brought them out of Egypt. 
so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, capital letters, Yahweh, that's the covenant name for God. I am the Lord, their God. Wherever you see Lord in capital letters in an English translation, think covenant. That's what it means. Yahweh, Jehovah, whatever it is, nobody is quite sure of the exact vowels and so on in the original because the name was too holy for the Jews to utter. But it talks about the covenant personal relationship of God with his people. Think of his promises, think of his faithfulness. Now, he says, I'm going to dwell among them, and I am the Lord their God. They will know that because I'll be with them. Eden, thrown out, God distant. Tabernacle, God comes to dwell in the midst of his people through the sacrifices and because he set up the system. So they build the tabernacle. And uh, chapter 40, uh, verses 34 to 38 are also worth looking at, because at this point, at the end of the book, everything is ready. Chapter 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle as he promised. Moses couldn't enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud had settled upon it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, have you ever thought of that? God says, build me a tabernacle and I'll come down and meet you. They build the tabernacle, God comes down, and the glory is so overwhelming that they can't even go in. Not even Moses can go in to meet him. Because the glory of the Lord fills the place. So what are we going to do? Here we've got a tabernacle to meet with God, but nobody can go in to meet with him because his glory is so great. And his cloud of glory is upon them all the time. Verse 36, in all the travels where they went, the cloud... Uh, from above the tabernacle would move and they'd set out, but if the cloud didn't lift, they didn't set out until the day it lifted. So we're left with this problem at the end of Exodus, you see. How are we going to have fellowship with God if his glory is so great and our sinfulness is so great that even a Moses can't go in and worship? Well, now, the five books of Moses are one. So forget the big word that says Leviticus underneath in huge letters and go straight on. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Verse 35, God has come down, his glory fills the tabernacle. What does he do next? He calls to Moses from the tabernacle. And he said, verse 2, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. Now the word translated there, offering, comes from a Hebrew verb that means to bring near. So if you wanted to translate it absolutely literally, it would be, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when any of you brings that which brings you near to the Lord, bring us that which brings you near an animal, either from the herd or from the flock. What's he saying? Well, he goes on to talk about the burnt offering and all the detailed offerings that come in the first chapters of Leviticus. What he's saying, you see, is... The only way you can come into my presence is if you bring the blood of the sacrifice. I have come down and filled the tabernacle, but my glory will consume you if you do not bring the offerings, the animal sacrifices that I determine you must bring in order that you will learn that I am a holy God and I cannot be approached by sinners unless there is the blood of atonement. See how it goes on, verse 3, Leviticus 1. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he, must, he is to offer a male without defect. He must present it at the entrance of the tent of the meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. He is to lay his hand 
on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. Now it couldn't be clearer, could it? If I want to go in to worship God in the tabernacle, there has to be an offering that is identified as me, just like in the Passover. And that by laying my hand on that burnt offering, that animal becomes my representative, my substitute. And the shedding of that animal's blood, God permits to make atonement for my sin so that the relationship that he's brought me into through the redemption out of Egypt can be enjoyed and lived in. That's why the sacrifices were given, so that they could go on living in relationship with God. Why is it so important? Well, I'm at the bottom of the page now. I'm sorry I hadn't given you those clues, but I'm at the bottom of the page in chapter 17, verse 11, which is in many ways the key verse in Leviticus. Let's just quickly look at that. Leviticus 17:11. This is why it's important. Those verses above it are all about substitution. 1, 4, 3, 2, 4, 4. 16, 20 to 21, they're all about the substitution of the animal for us. Leviticus 17 says the reason. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. That's why it's important, you see, if they're going to be able to go in. Otherwise, their lives will be forfeit because the glory and holiness of God will consume them in all their sin, but he provides the blood of the sacrifice in their place so that they can go in as that sacrifice becomes their substitute and the blood covers their sin. Now this is beautifully taken up, of course, in the letter to the Hebrews, and I think we've just got time for a quick flip to Hebrews uh, because it's so important to see the link between the Old and the New Testament. When you get to Hebrews chapter 10, is a wonderful passage where he says in verse 1 the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming all this that we've been reading in Leviticus is just pointing forward to Jesus our lamb for this reason it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship couldn't really deal with the basic problem it was the means by which God kept them in fellowship but it was always pointing forward to a greater solution if it could, if it could have dealt with it, they would have stopped being offered. The worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and they wouldn't have felt guilty for their sins. But clearly they had to come back, verse 3 says, every year. There was the annual day of atonement, the annual reminder of sins. It's actually today, I think, isn't it, in the Jewish calendar, the day of atonement. Because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now look at the contrast, verse 5. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said... Sacrifice and offering you didn't desire, but a body you prepared for me. Quoting here from the psalm, Psalm 40, wasn't that God didn't tell them to make sacrifices. He did, but that wasn't his desire. His desire was the sacrifice of his son, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So though they brought their burnt and sin offerings, they were not what pleased God. It was pointing forward to what was going to please God, and that's in verse 7. Then I said, the son, here I am. It's written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. First he says, sacrifices and offerings you didn't desire, nor were you pleased with them. Then verse 9 he said, here I am, I've come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. 
And that's why the sacrifice of Jesus atones for our sin. See, what that animal could never bring to God in the Old Testament was a perfect will. It had to have a blameless, defectless body, but that's all it could bring. It's just an animal. But Jesus brings a perfect, obedient will to God. I've come to do your will, O God. And he does it perfectly throughout his life, sinless, undefiled, separate from sinners. And so when he dies as the sacrificial lamb on the cross, he is able to give his perfect will in the place of my rebellious will. He exactly matches my need in a way that no animal ever could. And because he is the son of God, his action on the cross is an eternal action that always matches my need. So that his sacrifice is complete and sufficient and perfect. One oblation, satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. And then Hebrews 10.10, by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. See, that's what the tabernacle is talking about. All those animal sacrifices down the years could never actually deal with the problem, but they pointed forward. They kept them in fellowship because that was God's way and he uh, was prepared to have that whole system there. But all the time they were longing for a better sacrifice, for a sacrifice that could really deal with human sin. And only the Son of God in his deity and in his perfect humanity could make that sacrifice for us. So Leviticus is pointing us forward all the time to Jesus. Well, let's turn to the last page. And uh, this is where we reach um, farcical proportions of three minutes on numbers and two on Deuteronomy. Um, <clears throat> however, let's just look at numbers for a moment. Now, I said that the focus in numbers is the challenge to God's covenant faithfulness. Uh, the first chapters are historical. And then you find the history particularly focuses on problems that they faced. So chapter 11, you find them complaining about the monotony of the manna, uh, the what's it. You know, the Hebrew word manna simply means what is it? So that when they went out and they saw the manna for the first time, they said, oh, what is it? Yes, that's what it is. It's the what's it. It's the manna. And they got tired of it day after day. And they complained rather than thanking God for it. Oh, that we might have a juicy steak from Egypt or whatever the equivalent was, wasn't it? Cucumbers and garlic they were after. So that's a problem. What happens when God's people complain? Chapter 12 is a challenge to Moses' leadership and authority. Why should he be the one leading us? There are plenty of other people. Chapter 13 and 14 is the challenge of the spies who come back with unfavorable reports about the land. You know, they're too big for us. We can't overcome them. 16 and 17 is the rebellion of Korah and 250 others with him. Levites who wanted to be priests, who weren't satisfied with what God had called them to do. All these, you see, are challenges to God's community and challenges to God's faithfulness. In chapter 20, you have the opposition of Edom, E-D-O-M. And uh, everything comes to a grinding halt on the plains of Moab in chapter 22, and Balaam attempts to curse Israel. A great enemy is raised up to stop them from going forward to the promised land. In chapter 25, it's immorality and idolatry and flagrant rebellion against God. And all of these challenges all the way through numbers. In every story, God judges the sin, 
but he provides a way ahead. He provides the forgiveness. He's still faithful to his promises in the midst of his people's rebellion. And the end of the book is the beginning of the possession of the land. But before we go to that story, we have the book of Deuteronomy. And here the basis is again on the law as the grounds of fellowship with God as they go into the land. Many scholars have said that the book of Deuteronomy is modelled on what they describe as the Hittite treaty pattern. The Hittites were, of course, an ancient Near Eastern people, and they say the book is constructed according to the way in which treaties were drawn up in the ancient Near East. I think there's probably something in that. They lived, obviously, within a community. They reflected that uh, wider community, and it's not unlikely that the book, in some ways, reflects that sort of pattern. Of course, that doesn't affect his inspiration in any way. God is using that pattern to teach his own people about the treaty that he's made with them, the covenant relationship he's brought them into, and what he requires of them. The prologue is section A, 1, 1 to 443, in which the history up to the present time is recalled. It's a great statement of God's delivering hand and of his faithfulness to them in the desert. Then there are stipulations which take up most of the book, the rehearsing of the law in the lives of his people, expounded in detail, covering every aspect of their social and their personal life. Lots of detail there, the stipulations. That's, again, part of the conventional pattern. Prologue, first of all, why we've come to this point. What the king who's making the treaty requires. Then there are witnesses. In chapter 27, God calls on the two immovable mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, to be witnesses to his covenant faithfulness. And then, as with all treaties, there are sanctions. If you break the treaty, this is what will happen. If you fulfill the treaty, this is what will happen. And chapters 28 to 30 are about blessings and cursings which Israel will experience or endure according to her obedience to the covenant king. The remaining chapters deal with the covenant being placed in safekeeping with the appointment of Moses' successor, Joshua, and the last chapter, of course, added after Moses' death. So it's a, a very fascinating book in which the great themes of the Pentateuch about God's faithfulness and the requirement of obedience are built up uh, throughout the course of the book. Well, we can only just touch on it, but you see how the Pentateuch holds together as a unit. God promises a people, a land, his presence, his blessing. He brings them out of Egypt. He brings them to Sinai. He gives them his law. He institutes the sacrifices so that they can live in fellowship with him. Sometimes they obey, often they don't. But he goes on being faithful to them. He goes on reiterating his law. He goes on showing them his grace. He goes on preparing them for an ultimate solution which is much greater than anything they've experienced. And by the end of the Pentateuch, they are ready to enter the land, and you are ready to go home. And so we'll stop there tonight.